All right, all right, all right. That's the Foghorn. It must be time for the Cavish Ships podcast. Yep, the weekly time where we try and cut through some of the fog, the murk, and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavis. And I'm Chris Rebello. Coming up, lessons from the past are often guidelines to the present. Just over a century ago, the British Royal Navy got rid of huge numbers of old ships to reinvest in a more modern fleet. How'd that go? Are there lessons for a U.S. Navy trying to divest to invest? We'll talk with naval thinker Jerry Hendricks. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson is leading a group of ships and aircraft from the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia, taking part in Malabar exercises in the Bay of Bengal this month. The exercises are an annual feature for the Quad Nations, the quadrilateral security strategic dialogue between the four countries. Emphasizing the importance of the exercises, U.S. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday, on a visit to India, hosted India's Chief of Navy Admiral Karamir Singh on board the Vincent on October 14th. The British carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth left Singapore October 13th to begin the return leg of the Carrier Strike Group 21 deployment, which began in May. The strike group will carry out a series of exercises with other nations over the next two months before the carrier returns in December to her home port of Portsmouth, England. Okay. The French government revealed October 13th the intelligence ship Dupoy de Lome had carried out a Taiwan Strait transit between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan. It was the second such French transit this year, as the frigate Sarkouf made a similar passage in May. The U.S. Navy has been keeping up a roughly once-a-month Taiwan Strait movement to demonstrate freedom of the seas navigation. The last U.S. transit was on September 17th. Japan launched the submarine Hakugai October 14th at Kawasaki Heavy Industries in Kobe. The sub is the second lithium-ion-powered boat building in Japan. The first Taigei is nearing completion. Japan is the first country to install a safe lithium-ion battery plant able to outperform air-independent subs as well as other diesel-electric submarines. In some ways, the lithium-ion and air-independent submarines are superior to nuclear-powered subs, particularly in self-generated noise. The remains of all five crew members lost August 30th, 31st. When their MH-60S helicopter crashed at sea have been recovered, the U.S. Navy said October 12th. The Seahawk helicopter from Helicopter Sea Combat Squadron 8 was flying from the carrier Abraham Lincoln when it crashed into the sea. One crew member survived. Five other sailors were aboard the carrier were injured. The wreckage of the helicopter with the remains were recovered by the chartered service vessel Haas Bayou from a depth of about 5,300 feet off the coast of Southern California. An Australian Navy MH-60R Romeo Seahawk helicopter suffered a mishap and ditched in the Philippine Sea October 14th. All three aboard were safely rescued, rescued from the Hilo, which was assigned to the frigate Waramunga. Australia grounded its other 23 Seahawks pending an investigation. Australia is also buying another 12 of the Sikorsky helicopters from the U.S. And that's a quick look at Naval News this week. All right, let's move to the discussion portion of the podcast. Um, we are very lucky to be joined by 
Um, retired Navy Captain Jerry Hendricks, uh, the current vice president at the Telemus Group. Captain Hendricks, uh, while in uniform, served in a number of uh, billets ashore and afloat, uh, retiring in his last job as the head of the Navy's History and Heritage Command, both in uniform and out, has been a staunch advocate for the Navy and has been a staunch advocate for um, the public to learn more about their Navy, why they have a Navy, and what type of Navy um, the United States needs uh, to stay a superpower and to compete now and into the future. And so we're uh, very happy to, uh, to have uh, Jerry Hendricks join us. Sir, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. So you have an article um, this week uh, in Foreign Policy. It's part of a, um, a several article group that is part of the print edition, but it's available now online. The title of the article is Sea Power Makes Great Powers. And the subheadline is History Reveals a Country's Rise and Decline Are Directly Related to the Heft of Its Navy. So why is the United States intent on downsizing? I guess the first question for me, and, and maybe as an introduction to the readers um, or to the listeners, why did you write this article and who are you trying to reach with the arguments that you have in the piece? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the first, uh, the answer to your first question, why did I write the article? Actually, I was, I was contacted by FP, uh, who had seen uh, some of my other articles in other places, and, uh, and they told me that they were thinking about doing an issue that was sort of focused on on the Navy and on the sea. And they they asked me if I wanted to write. And, and I came back to them with an idea that I was going to write something sort of uh, grandiose and philosophical. And they said, you know, we'd like you to write about ship count and numbers. And which which struck me, I mean, that was not the essay that I originally wanted to write because I, I had done that. I, I've written about ship count and the importance of a larger Navy for the better part of, you know, the last oh, you know, 10, 11 years now. Uh, and I wanted to kind of move on from the numbers to get at sort of the broader strategy. But they said for their audience that, you know, they needed someone to explain why ship counts matter. Uh, and that led me, I actually took some time and, and sort of stepped back and wanted to reconsider that particular question uh, from a different angle. You know, obviously having done it before, you know, I, I wanted to do it differently. And so I lit upon the idea of the historic analogy dealing with uh, the Royal Navy. And, and this was something that had been on my mind for a number of years, ever since I'd had a conversation with a former senior defense official uh, who was really talking up um, Jackie Fisher's revolution as, as an offset strategy and something that we all should look at this idea of, um, uh, although not using the term divest to invest. And, but the Fisher analogy um, and then the subsequent analogy of, of what we did in the late 1970s, when we sort of cut and culled a lot of our, our conventional forces in order to make the investment in new technology associated with what we now look at as second offset, those things I thought failed as analogies because we, we failed to understand um, what had happened uh, you know, after that. So with Fisher's analogy, the thing that I always saw was that uh, when Jackie Fisher called the fleet by 150 ships, um, that he, in fact, destabilized the global international environment because they pulled back so many of their smaller craft from some of their distant stations. And that caused an instability that allowed other European colonial powers to move out. 
And it also leveled the battlefield uh, for sort of the ship count in, in Northern Europe. And, and so that caused a massive naval arms race. Um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, many have cited that as a contributing factor to the outbreak of World War I. So, you know, great idea about offset technology and dreadnought, but, you know, I wanted to look at that implication for us today. And, and so I stepped back and I wrote this essay looking at what comes about when you uh, divest to invest. And, and so that's, that's how I wrote the essay. Uh, Jerry, Chris Cavus here. So, uh, but your basic theme for this regards to the U.S. Navy is that it is a Navy in decline right now, I think is, is, is how you see it. Uh, compared with the dramatic rise of the Chinese Navy, which in the world of analogies would, is, is very close to the rise of uh, Imperial Germany in the early part of the 20th century, which is what Jackie Fisher had to contend with. Um, is, that, is that sort of where you are with that? It, it, it's close, but of course, nothing is ever perfect. You know, you know history never repeats itself, but it, it sure rhymes, you know, that, that old uh, trite phrase. The, it's not exact in the sense that, you know, China's breakout right now is very much about being a regional Navy and establishing first regional dominance, first in the Western Pacific and then down into the Indian Ocean between it and Africa. Uh, the problem why the United States really is in decline um, is, is more about the fact that the U.S. has global interests and global concerns and with its shrinking fleet is not able to defend itself and its interests globally. Whereas China, which has, by numerical standards, a larger fleet, albeit less technologically advanced than us, um, it only has to be great right now in one place. So, uh, but the problem with that theory, Chris, is that when the U.S. is a global power, if it fails to uphold its interests anywhere, it causes uh, the beginning of a cascade failure where our credibility begins to shatter and fold and crumble. So if China is able to establish dominance in the Western Pacific and is able to create a sphere of influence, then that opens the door for other spheres of influence to rise and, and for us as a global power to essentially kind of fold up and then have to come back to being a regional power. That is contrary to our interest in sort of defending a global international system right now. So those are some of the issues I wanted to raise within this. The US is in decline, but it's in decline under sort of a special framing of that understanding of that term. So you wrote uh, the US Naval strategy, the current Naval strategy, will produce a fleet too small to protect the United States's global interests or win its wars. So really in, in your view, what what you see happening right now isn't going to do either aspect. It's not going to deter. It's not going to protect our interests. It's not going to win wars. Yes, that's correct. Uh, we 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 will not have a large enough uh, conventional fleet. Uh, by that I mean things like frigates and destroyers, uh, in order to deter the outbreak of war. Nor will we have sufficient size of what I call war winning capabilities, which I really look at within our fast attack submarine force or the SSGNs uh, to be able to have uh, the decisive ability in the event of war. Um, we, we're, we're too small in sort of both major mission areas. And so that's why I wanted to call about the you know, conversation about numbers is I think we have to one, be smarter about our investments 
Uh, that's why I, you know, consistently called for a larger frigate force, as well as some, some significant investments uh, in uh, in our fast attack submarines and SSGNs. Well, what what do you think about? So you have some today today's Royal Navy. You're talking about Jackie Fisher of the Royal Navy of the early 20th century. Um, today's Royal Navy is vastly smaller, and is investing heavily in high-end things like two aircraft carriers and everything that goes with it. But not a very big fleet, but they're interested in, in, in exercising some sort of influence worldwide. So they're now uh, fielding, they're, they're going back to a classic 19th century Royal Navy strategy of gunboat diplomacy, if you will. They have these 2,000-ton patrol boats, which are relatively self-sufficient, can be at sea for a long time, and they're fielding them on very large, far-ranging missions. So they've got actually five deployed right now, including two that are on the U.S. West Coast. They're, head, they're headed for the Pacific, a three-year deployment to the Pacific to range from the Arctic to the south to the west coast of the United States to the Indian Ocean and represent the British interests, show the flag uh, throughout the Pacific region now that the Queen Elizabeth Carrier Striker was headed home. They're also, they also use these ships. There's one based on, on Gibraltar. It's on a West Africa mission. There's another one in the, uh, the, the um, Caribbean, the West Indies guard ship. There's another one down in the Falklands. And they're using these things. And this is classic gunboat diplomacy. This is right up with 19th century, early 20th century concepts. It's how a, how a Navy with very restricted assets is still trying to maintain presence and awareness. And these are not high-end ships. They're not expensive uh, by any means. They're not, they're not meant to conduct you know, high-end combat operations. But their presence says something. Do you see any role in that? I mean, what, what, one of the options, you, know, you, want, you want a fleet for more than the 400 ships, but we can't build anything that, that we don't gold plate and lard, lard up with every capability we can find. And then, then you're, there's endless criticism about, well, it's not survivable and everything and every, every scenario we can dream up. And you can't build anything. Everything's too expensive. It's got too much. Yeah, even, uh, even, you know, the frigate is headed right down that road. Well, we're, we're not sure about that yet. Oh, I mean, I'm, the frigate, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we, 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 pretty, have, we haven't, I'm, I'm pretty we haven't, good on we that haven't built the first frigate yet. So let's, let's wait, you know, wait for that to, to happen. And before we, we figure well, out whether that's the question, cool. the question though, is what kind of fleet would you build? Uh, it, do so, you have a multifaceted, you know, balanced fleet like that with ships that are low end, but yeah, you can, so, you I mean, can afford to send out there? So in, in, when I wrote uh, my short treatise last year uh, to provide and maintain a Navy um, and where I was trying to present a strategy, a national security strategy, I, I was making the argument at the time that naval primacy is a strategy um, that, uh, you know, it, you can, uh, you can, if you want to avoid the long continuous land wars, uh, then, you know, invest in your Navy and try to influence events uh, ashore by using naval power. I think and in that, I put in a fleet structure of about 456 ships, but uh, a lot of those ships were frigates, uh, offshore patrol vessels, and unmanned platforms, unmanned surface and unmanned underwater. Um, you know, the, the, the point there was um, that we cannot afford to have, uh, you know, a four.
400 ship Navy that's comprised of all aircraft carriers, nor will a fleet of 400 either. So you have to find that right mix. And so again, this balance, Chris, that we talked about earlier between the preserve the peace force and the win the war force, um, you know, that I would go with the frigates and the smaller vessels on to do the day-to-day presence operations, which I think is super critical. I know there's some voices that are saying that naval presence isn't really a mission and that it's not even uh, an older mission. It's, it's something that we recently invented. Uh, I, would, I would take umbrage of that and I can explain how presence actually, you know, derived as something we began to think and write about. Who is saying that, Jerry? I mean, in, in your yeah, in I'm your not gonna. He, I'm gonna allow that. that I'm gonna allow that voice to publish his essay, which uh, uh, he's told me he's gonna put out in proceedings. So, that, so that's that. That's that. That's one guy. Do you do you see a group of people who to think like that? Yeah. So I've seen it being discussed uh, in certain forums, uh, you know, strategy discussion groups and so on, where we're talking about whether presence, you know, what the relative importance of presence is specifically in our current strategic environment, when readiness, when the fleet is strained and the readiness has been in decline, um, you know, that perhaps we ought to look at a different model. Uh, you know, as you know, you know, during the interwar period, uh, we essentially had a surge and exercise model where we sort of kept the fleet home. We surged out to meet certain crises, but we exercised in order to do experimentation and innovation. So that is a model that, uh, that I've heard some talk about. I think that, you know, in the post-World War II era, now that we've established these interests and these uh, sailing uh, directions where we want to maintain presence in these various different, you know, 18 maritime regions of the world, that if we pull back from that, that is as much as inviting uh, powers like China and Russia to essentially to fill that vacuum. And, uh, And in fact, I think that during the, there was about a two-year period of time where we significantly pulled back on freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, and that incentivized the creation of the artificial islands that China sort of made a move for because they, they viewed that we weren't going to be out there and aggressively upholding our interests. So in order to do that across all these regions, that's why I think that we have to make these investments in the frigate force, and in the offshore patrol vessel, and then in the unmanned platforms, in order to maintain that forward presence on on a persistent basis. What's the obstacle here, uh, Jerry? As as you see it, um, I mean, the Navy has done a number of studies which said it needed to get bigger. Um, I mean, the current number that the Navy was trying to get to is bigger than the force that it has. I mean, it's always had a a higher number and yet it has been unable to build to whatever its stated number is. And then, you know, now you have this whole idea of, as you write about um, divest to invest, um, is this a, is it a function of people in the Pentagon that don't get it? Is it a function of the fact that Capitol Hill doesn't get it? Does the Navy not get it? How do we get to a Navy or an approach that you describe both in your book and in this article? Uh, so I think I think it's a combination of factors, you know, uh, two year election cycles, one year budget cycles. Um, the fact that I think our Navy leadership, uh, you know, we, the admirals that we have today uh, came of age during the 1990s, during the, the huge drawdown and the peace dividend. Uh, many of them don't have experience in sort of like the let's just say the 600 ship Navy. And prior to that, uh, and they've been through this sort of a culture of doing more with less. And then after 2017, you know, we all got beat up quite a bit from that. 
you know, and I think we're in very much a defensive crouch. Also, I don't think that the Congress has a great appreciation, although we're trying to educate it, and there's certain key voices on both sides of the aisle that are out there beginning to talk up the importance of the Navy. But, you know, I, I think what it takes is it's going to take, uh, you know, uh, if I went back to my historical models, it's going to take a chief executive uh, who believes in a larger military and a larger Navy that has a secretary of defense that backs him and then a secretary of the Navy who's willing to be a, uh, a potent public advocate on it um, and, and be able to really work that system, whether it's Capitol Hill or getting out to the American people. The key thing here is uh, we've allowed our industrial base and our repair facilities to become so atrophied and anemic that even if I turn around today, and, and we all know this, we turn around today and told everyone, I want you to build twice as many ships. Well, they, they can't do it. They don't have the workforce. Uh, they don't have the training. They don't have the infrastructure at their yards in order to double production. Uh, that's why I think you go back to the 2018 uh, Defense Commission that said we need a year over year, three to 5% increase in defense spending and top line. You can only grow out of this. You know, you have to give a long lead indicator to the industry um, that this is coming and it's going to be persistent for them to make the right investments. Um, and right now, you know, you know, we all know if we went to GD or HII and told them, you know, turn it on, they're going to kind of look at us somewhat askance and say, yeah, what are you going to tell me next year? Uh, they have to plan long haul. Um, and, uh, and we've all suffered from these types of decisions over the last 30 years. There doesn't seem to be, I mean, much of a movement to give those companies more assistance, federal assistance, to do this sort of thing. It's one thing to have CAPEX, which is which are pretty much focused improvements in shipyards that the government will will assist with. In World War II, and then the years leading directly leading up to it, there was a huge federal investment in these facilities. Uh, many times the, the government itself would actually do the buy the land, uh, pay, pay for the expansion, and then contract with the shipyards to run them. Um, the infrastructure and, and, and industry itself, they'll invest, they'll, they'll build the workforce, they'll, they'll expand if they think the business is going to be there. But yes. it, takes, it takes five years. Yeah, I mean, number one, they, gotta, they have to raise the capital themselves and they have to vote to do it and then they uh then it takes them five years to make those investments and then is the program going to be there when you said it would be good example of it didn't work out that way was uh bath ironworks uh reconfigured their yard with a great big huge fantastic hall um to build to have a major role in building 28 ddg 1000s and then that turned out to be truncated to three ships and it's a nice, it's a fantastic facility, and they're using it. It's been great because they went back to building DDG 51s, which wasn't the plan at the time. Yeah. But but they made a huge investment in that, and they they tooled it for a program that didn't work out that way. They they got burned. Um, right now you've got GDEB Electric Boat has made major investments in their facilities at Quonset Point, Rhode Island, and, and at uh, Groton to take on simultaneous production of Columbia-class ballistic missile submarines and the um, Virginia-class. So, I mean, in, industry will, if, if they think the business is there, 
industry will make the investments. The problem is there's no consistency with the government. And it's not just a political thing. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's sort of a theme. Where's the theme? You know, if, yeah. if and people thought, you know, I mean, building a bigger Navy is not a, a Republican versus Democrat issue, I guess is my immense frustration is that there's huge support among Democrats, quite a large number of Democrats for major investments in the Navy. And, you know, people listen to the progressives. That's not the Democratic Party. But the, the, the mainstream is all for it. And I think Congress in 2016, and I mean Congress, not the Republicans, uh, after the Trump administration came in, everybody said, well, these guys are going to ask for the moon. And everybody's going, where is it? And they didn't. They submitted the, the Obama budget. The next year, they submitted pretty much the Obama budget again. The third year, there was a plus up. And they said at the time, it was a one-year effort. And the fourth year, it dropped back down again. And Congress is going, where is it? And Congress, I'm, and, you know, unusually in this fractured world that we live in, that was a pretty bipartisan reaction. It's Democrat and Republicans. And the Navy itself just doesn't advocate for it. Now we have a, apparently a National Security Council and a top Pentagon leadership that doesn't particularly believe in it. And the Navy's not doing any job at all at advocating sea power themselves and talking about the issues you're talking about i mean no, you've, got, I, I, you've got some great themes in here it'd be nice to hear the navy itself talking about these themes you know you've, you yeah yeah you, you have a great line in here talking about uh phil davidson who retired early this year as a four-star and his very stark warnings in his last year at office of uh, what he views as the imminent uh conflict with china one way or another and then you have the current chief of naval operations, Gilday, talking in his divest to invest strategy, which won't produce anything of any reasonable um, capability for quite some years. And you have a leave a line in here that says, taken together, these views add up to strategic confusion and an obliviousness to history. And I love that. That's a great phrase, obliviousness to history. So true. And people, you know, those, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. And I don't understand why more people aren't buying into this, these concepts that the Navy is worth the investment in so many intangible ways, but the Navy is not helping itself with this. They're kind of going along with it, it seems like. No, you I, and, and you know, I think that, you know, there is a growing consensus. No, you know, I, I think um, uh, I'm often amazed that, you know, everyone kind of treats what happened during the Cold War and sort of the broad national consensus for the containment strategy, as if George Kennan went up to the mountain and came down with these, you know, two engraved tablets, uh, and uh, and voila, we had uh, NSC 68 and everything else that came after that. And that's not the way it was, you know. The from 1945 to about 1957, U.S broader national security strategy was fraught with questions and confusion and what's going to happen and, you know, will, you know, how are we going to deal with this? Is the Soviet Union winning? Um, and, you know, we had commission after commission that looked at this thing. Um, you know, the Killian Commission in particular is one that I've been spending some time looking at, talking about the importance of trying to get into guided missiles and new technologies and, and you know, everything from manpower to the economy. It's not until the Sputnik moment, you know, late in the Eisenhower administration that everything clicks 
And suddenly Ike, who had been intent on balanced uh, budgets overall, actually allows uh, military spending to rise you know, considerably. Um, and, and we began to lay in for three ICBM programs, two IRBM programs, uh, and Navy shipbuilding kind of takes off. It's, it's, you know, but the thing here is, I think we're in that precursor mode now where everyone kind of agrees that China uh, is important, but we haven't had the ICBM launch of Sputnik uh, to really galvanize us yet. Um, you know, here we are, we're having a discussion about whether it's 1.5 trillion in real infrastructure and 3.5 trillion in people infrastructure. But if someone was to actually raise the idea that I need, you know, over the next 10 years to carve off, uh, you know, 150 billion of your 1.5 trillion and put it into defense, into shipyards, like the Shipyard Act, you know, great idea talking about ship repair, shipbuilding, uh, and we just couldn't get a consensus. Why? Because no one can recognize the Pearl Harbor or the Sputnik moment that would actually get every all the energy behind it. Uh, it's very frustrating for me. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm of a certain age. I've been writing about this for 10 years. No one seems to be paying attention. Uh, I think my writing is getting better. Uh, the ideas are getting more refined, but I'm not sure anyone's paying attention. So, you know, uh, this, this is my life's work. And yet I'm not getting uh, the traction or the effect that I want. So it is, it's very frustrating on a personal level. Uh, professionally, I think that, you know, we're getting more people informed on Capitol Hill um, so that if whatever is going to happen does happen, people will know the right things to do. But the question is, is, you know, why is it that we always have to wait for us to take the first, you know, smack across the cheek before we actually get our butts in motion to start doing things about it? I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, it's kind of, Chris, you know, about, you know, my thoughts about, you know, what's happened over the aircraft carrier air wing for all these years where we've lost all the range and that ability, you know, uh, at what point in time does it take another Pearl Harbor like event before we really begin align ourselves against the threat environment that exists. And, and I think that that's kind of where we've, we've walked ourselves to at this point. Yeah. I very much worry that, um, whether it's a Sputnik-like moment or a Pearl Harbor-like moment, that we will not be able to respond um, because the sophistication and the threat will be so great that instead of roaring back or meeting the challenge, you know, we will simply demure, um, and that will have the opposite effect. Um, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, I hope you'll be a regular uh, contributor on our podcast and you'll come back um, as you continue to write and as you continue to reach out to uh, to different audiences. Um, I, I agree with you. Your, your writing is very good, continues to get better, and I hope that you'll continue to share your thoughts with our audience. Absolutely. Well, I, pre I appreciate that. And I, I will tell you, um, Americans don't demure really well. And I'll just leave you with that. We have this thing called the Jacksonian impulse. Um, my fear is that we get smacked. Americans don't take smacks really well. Um, and then there will be a massive overreaction. And, and climbing the escalation ladder in this day and age is a frightful thing. So, uh, you know, the demure may be the, 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 the smart option. I'm afraid that we will climb the escalation ladder radically and uh, because we fail to prepare. So thank you very much for having me here today. Uh, and I look forward to chatting with you in the future as I'm able to publish things. Now hear this, now hear this.
Now hear this. Okay, it's time for Squawk Box. You know, every year, the internet is flooded with self-proclaimed Navy supporters wishing the U.S. Navy happy birthday. But not all those messages are appropriate. Chris Cervello has some thoughts. Thanks, Chris. Well, as you said, this week, the Navy celebrated its 246th birthday. This is actually one of my favorite holidays, believe it or not. I love that people come out of the woodwork on social media to wish the Navy and its sailors well, sharing their own memories of personal or familial connections to America's sea service. Pictures of fleet weeks, air shows, boot camp graduations, or commissioning ceremonies certainly warm my heart. In fact, what I also look forward to each year are the cringeworthy moments associated with the social outpourings of love and affection. Those members of Congress, industry partners, or even fellow government agencies who appreciate the Navy so much, they share pictures of Russian or Chinese ships. Hey, nothing says happy birthday and thank you for your service like a tweet with a picture of a Chinese built Thai patrol boat instead of an American littoral combat ship or Arleigh Burke destroyer. But let's assume that not everyone feels the same way I do. So here's my simple and easy to follow advice for the junior staffer or digital media guru tasked with putting together Senator so-and-so's I love you US Navy social media post. Do not Google ship, submarine, Navy or any other nautical term and grab the first image you see actually go to Navy.mil, the official website of the U.S. Navy, and pick a photo that has been vetted and properly shared for such occasions. I promise you the extra 45 seconds it takes to do this staff work will be worth your time and will prevent your boss or agency from being ridiculed on social media. See, I told you it was simple. Happy birthday, shipmates. Yeah, well, I don't know. It seems, still seems kind of an annual fun thing to ridicule them, didn't it? All right. Anyway, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian for his support, as well as to the Pencantieri Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.